Our text is Habakkuk 3, verses 16 through 19. I heard, and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones, and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there is no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The Lord, the sovereign Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. For the director of music, on my stringed instruments. After the sermon, let's sing hymn 10, stanzas 8 and 9. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, Habakkuk prophesied just shortly before Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem in 605 B.C., When Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came, he took some articles of the temple, and he took talented young men like Daniel, and then in the ensuing years, he would utterly destroy everything. Now, if you read Habakkuk 1, you you read that Habakkuk has complaints to the Lord. And that complaint is actually a form of, of prayer, pleading for the Lord to do something. First, Habakkuk complains... That Judah is in a mess. A hundred years earlier, the northern ten tribes of Israel have been destroyed and finished off. Judah, Jerusalem, had not learned its lesson. They were in spiritual decline. It was sin everywhere. So, so, so Habakkuk says, Lord, how long before you do something to punish your people? The Lord responds and says, oh Daniel, I'm going to punish them. I will send the Babylonians, and will they ever wreak havoc on my people, punishing them for their sins? So then Habakkuk has the next complaint, the next prayer. He says, Lord, it's good that you're punishing them, but that's too much. The Babylonians are vicious. They will come in and murder and destroy. They're going to do all kinds of despicable, horrible things. And now Habakkuk continues with that through his prophecy. And he's bringing that right into chapter 3, which is a a prayer and a psalm. And he says there in verse 2, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day, in our time. Make them known in wrath. Remember mercy. So he is praying, Lord, your wrath is coming on this people. And I understand that. I've asked you for that, but, but don't let it get out of hand. In your wrath, remember mercy. You've always been good to your people in the past. Do it also now. And Habakkuk knows that the Lord will do that. He describes that in verses 12 and 13. In wrath, you strode through the earth, and in anger, you threshed the nations. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. 
And that's a pretty powerful description of what happened to the Babylonians and how the Lord delivered his people after 70 years of exile. That brings us to our text, which has been called by some the greatest declarations of faith in the entire Bible. We are familiar with the words of Habakkuk 3 because it's found its way into the liturgy of our church, Hymn 10. And I cannot think of Hymn 10 without shivers going up and down my spine. We recall the cradle band coming from British Columbia playing Hymn 10 for us, new arrangement of music. You've probably heard it. It was powerful, it was majestic. It was beautiful, it stirred the soul, and it gave comfort. Yes, to people who are traveling on rough waters, whose lives sometimes feel like they're coming apart, Hymn 10 is an unbelievable expression of faith and of comfort. Perhaps you in in your own life are struggling with certain things, whether it's work or your marriage struggles within your family and other relationships. Habakkuk's message here in chapter 3 is like the book of Job, giving comfort to those who are in difficult situations. Let's look at that this morning under this theme. I rejoice in the Lord, who is my strength and my salvation. I will wait patiently, though the fig tree does not bud, And he makes my feet like the feet of a deer. Now Habakkuk's description of the Lord God in chapter 3 is vivid and powerful. God may very well be invisible. And he may dwell in unapproachable light. But through the eye of faith, Habakkuk sees him. And he sees him in all his glory and his power. The glory and splendor of the Lord is like lightning flashes. His power makes mountains quiver and crumble. And that's why Habakkuk has this reaction. We read, I heard, and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones, and my legs trembled. In modern terms, you'd say, Habakkuk said, my legs turned to jelly. Have you ever had that, that you were so frightened you couldn't move? And your bones felt like water or jelly. People who go through horrifying experience like being swept over Niagara Falls can describe this. Or people who have survived a lion attack. They're walking through the savannah. Suddenly there's a roar of a lion and a lion leaps out at them. It's, it's, like, it's like I was jelly and glued to the spot. I could do nothing. That's Habakkuk. My bones were like water. My heart was pounding so fast, it was like it was going to jump right out of my throat and my mouth, and my my lips quivered. You say, well, that's a strange way to react, isn't it, to God? Especially for a prophet of the Lord. Is our God not a loving God and a covenant father? Why be scared of him? Don't play games here, brothers and sisters. He is a loving father. He is a a covenant God. He's also the almighty God. He created this world. He can make mountains flatten. With an earthquake, he can create a canyon. You come close to God, 
It is electrifying power. It is overwhelming. Like the people of Israel standing on Mount Sinai with the mountain shaking and thunder and lightning. People were scared. This is an awesome God. You come close. It turns your bones to jelly. But the wonderful thing is that it does not turn Habakkuk into a a blubbering idiot. After all is said and done, what Habakkuk does not want is an unloving God. And what he does not want is a God without power. He wants a loving God. And oh, does he ever need a powerful God? Because he needs God. His people need deliverance. And and, and someone who is weak cannot do that. He needs a powerful God. And he has seen plenty of evidence of that right now. And therefore, Habakkuk says... I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. I am not worried, says Habakkuk. I know, I rest assured, that Almighty God and faithful Father will will protect us and he will overcome our enemy. Now, the question that we have right now is that, has Habakkuk got any basis for his patience and his assurance? God is almighty, we know that. How does Habakkuk know that God will use his power for the benefit of his people? After all, a hundred years earlier, God had wiped out the northern ten tribes of Israel. 722 BC, Israel ceased to exist as a nation. It was done, it was over. God wasn't going back there. It was done. And now Judah, a hundred years later, still hadn't learned its lesson. I mean, if you look in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Habakkuk is complaining there to the Lord. He's praying to God about his people, Judah. And he says, Lord, why do you make me look on injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails the wicked hem and the righteous, so that justice is perverted. In other words, social injustice was the order of the day. The rich ripped off the poor. It was like the rich was peeling the skin right off the backs of the poor, taking their farms, taking their homes. And when the poor people went to court, there was no justice. Justice was subverted. So why, why would God have mercy on the people of Judah? Why would he show mercy in the midst of his wrath? Well, there's only one reason, and that reason is his promises and the fact that there's a faithful remnant still clinging to those promises. And suddenly the words, in wrath, remember mercy, take on a special meaning. Why will God show mercy in the midst of wrath? Had his people done anything to change their situation? Had they atoned for their sins? Had they become a righteous people? Had they satisfied the wrath of God? You know the answer is no. The only reason that God will show mercy in the midst of wrath is because he's going to take his wrath and put it on somebody else. On the coming Messiah. Another prophet had said a little bit before Habakkuk about the servant of the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ, 
Surely he took our infirmities and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. You know where that's from, right? That's Isaiah 53. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So the wrath of God doesn't just go away. God doesn't say to his people, let's let bygones be bygones. Let's bury the hatchet, and we'll move on, and we'll just get along and and ignore our differences. No, the Lord says, you sinned. And I want satisfaction, but I will send my own son to be born of a woman, to become your Lord and Savior. And I will put your sins on him, and I will put my wrath on him, and he will pay for all your sins. Brothers and sisters, our our text is pointing very clearly to our Lord Jesus Christ, his suffering and his death, something that we are going to commemorate next Friday morning. And indeed, we commemorate that every day of our lives. How serious was the suffering of Jesus? You get the idea, of course, not the idea, you know that he's the son of God. And you might think that a son of God, whatever human suffering he had, couldn't have been that hard for him to handle. Take a look at the real Jesus. Look at him in the Garden of Gethsemane just before his crucifixion, when he was by himself praying to God, we get there a glimpse into his soul. He prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Can you imagine anguish so great That the blood was coming through his skin, exuding through the pores. That there were drops of blood all over his body. His his arteries, his veins were popping and popping, sweating blood. His pain was so intense. And when he hung there on the cross of Golgotha, who will forget his soulful cry of anguish? My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And then he died. When he was dead, a centurion came with a spear and thrust it into his side. And we read in the Bible, out came a mixture of water and blood. I have read medical analysis of that water and blood coming out of the body of Jesus. It's kind of like CSI, analyzing what killed him. And that peculiar mixture of water and blood is said by some medical experts to indicate that what Jesus died of is a sudden breaking of his heart. He didn't suffocate. He didn't bleed to death. It wasn't just shock. He died of a broken heart. So deep was his anguish, so deep was his pain that it killed him. He couldn't live anymore. So you got Habakkuk saying about God, 
I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. And that's just from looking at God, who's not necessarily doing something to Habakkuk. But imagine what that was for our Lord Jesus Christ, particularly when he hung there on the cross. And he looked at his father with whom he had an eternal relationship. The father who had said just a little while ago, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And this father was turning his face away from him. This father was blasting at Jesus in anger and wrath, holding him accountable for the sins of the world. A loving father became a judge and the enemy who said to Jesus, you are going to hell. You are going to go to the open doors of hell and pay 100% for the sins of the people. His bones turned to jelly. His lips quivered. His heart pounded as the iniquities of us all was laid upon him. And he consciously, willingly died for us. Habakkuk said... I waited patiently for the day of calamity to come on the enemy that had invaded his people. Well, as Jesus was hanging there on the cross, shaking in fear and anguish, he also waited patiently. He did not come down from the cross. He did not lighten the load. He said, I wait patiently and will die on this cross until the enemy that's invading us is conquered. Our Lord Jesus Christ hung on the cross for the surpassing worth of knowing that he was breaking the power of Satan, paying for our sins, and redeeming us as children of God. And that, brothers and sisters, is the heart of the message in the book of Habakkuk. We tend to think that, like the book of Job, the major question is, Lord, why do I suffer? What are you going to do to help me? Look at the trouble in my marriage. Look at someone I love that's, that's ill and maybe even dying. Or my job is going nowhere. Lord, what are you going to do? How are you going to help me? That's not the major question. That's not the first order of business. The big question is, Lord, do I have a relationship with you? Do you love me? Does Jesus Christ's blood pay for all my sins. That is the biggest question that we will ever ask in our lives, brothers and sisters. And I ask it of you this morning. How is it with your soul? Is the most important thing in your life, your highest joy, to know that Jesus died for your sins. And that in him, you are right with God. And there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus the Lord. Only when Habakkuk knows this, only when he is assured that in wrath God will remember mercy, because his wrath goes on the Christ, so that the mercy may come on him, only then can Habakkuk say, though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, Though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. 
Now, thanks to the singing of hymn 10, we are very familiar with these words. And when hymn 10 is played with solemnity and dignity, and the heart of the congregation rises together with a living faith and a living joy, these words stir up the soul in an unbelievable way. And yet, brothers and sisters, the question has to be asked, do we really appreciate what Habakkuk is saying? When, ha- when Habakkuk says, you know, my, my fig tree and, and my olive tree and my, my grapes, they're not blossoming or producing fruit. Nothing's growing in the field. My pen and the stall, they're all empty. Do you know what he's saying? He doesn't live in a global village, you know. There are no supermarkets. There are no tractor trailers coming into Palestine. When the vine produces no fruit and there's no blossoms on the tree and the stall is empty, it means Habakkuk is in danger of dying. He is in danger of starving. In today's terms, it would be like us having MasterCard in our wallet and maybe, maybe money in our pocket but there's no food. Refrigerator, bare. Pantry, bare. Every grocery store, nothing on the shelf. And there are no planes, no trains, no automobiles bringing anything in. There isn't a bit of food to be found anywhere. Suddenly the mouse skittering in the backyard looks attractive. The pet, the family pet, starts to look like food because there is nothing. You are in danger of starving. You are in danger of dying. Habakkuk says, Yet even then I will rejoice in the Lord, and I will be joyful in God my Savior. That reminds us of another line in Habakkuk 2 verse 4. You will recognize this line right away, but the righteous will live by his faith. Famous quotation in Paul's letter to the Romans. Brothers and sisters, what good is it to say, I will live by faith, or no matter how hard times become, I will rejoice in the Lord. What good does that mean, unless you really mean it, and it comes from the heart? We all say it. Every last one of us says, I live by faith, and no matter what happens in my life, I will rejoice in the Lord. And that's pretty easy to say when your refrigerator's full of food and you've got your job and we live in a country of, of peace and prosperity. But what about when the times get really tough? When you have serious turmoil in your marriage or with your children? Or you lose your job and there's no job to be found. Or you're worried. You're worried that there is nothing for you in your retirement. I have sat with people, brothers and sisters. I have sat with people who have gone through tragedy and their lives melted. They fell apart. They gave up on their work. They hit the bottle. Marriage didn't matter. Basically, they, they had no comfort or hope in God. 
The same person who says, I believe in God, crumbled in difficult times. You see, words are cheap. Do you really believe it? Is it in your heart? Do you so know that God loves you? Are you so thrilled to the core that Jesus Christ washed you clean with his blood? And are you filled with the Holy Spirit that even when the the difficult time comes and it hits you hard, it makes you cry, it brings you low, still somewhere in the darkness you are able to reach out and say, but Lord, I trust you. I know you love me. I know that there is nothing that can separate me from your love in Christ Jesus the Lord. That we really understand what James wrote when he said, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. Do you even realize That in times of deep, deep trouble, the Lord is testing your faith to see whether you genuinely hold on and believe to him. You know, brothers and sisters, you can't wait for the bad day to come to say, let's see if my faith will work at that time. You can't wait for tragedy to strike and then say, maybe then in that tragic moments, somehow I will be stirred up to this amazing faith that holds on to the Lord. If you wait for trouble to strike, it'll bite you and bite you hard. You know, it's so important that as children of God, we right now have a close relationship with the Lord. That you love reading your Bible. That the preaching is your food and drink every Sunday. And that you are praying every day. Not just older people, but our boys and girls. That you are are praying. That you have that close relationship with the Lord. He is your God. He is your Father. He is your friend. You have an intimate relationship with God where you know how much He loves you. He has allowed you as a sinner to become His son and His daughter. Then, brothers and sisters, in the good times, we will rejoice in the Lord. And in the bad times, as hard as they are, we'll know one thing. Lord, you still love me. It is well with my soul. And I rejoice. Habakkuk, by the grace of God, has come to that point. And he shows what the consequences are of living by faith. He says, the sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. I love the rendition of our hymn 10 for these words. He makes my feet as nimble as feet of graceful rose. He lets me walk on mountains beyond the reach of woes. Habakkuk's faith has elevated him to a higher plane. It has connected him with God. In a living, intimate way. Although sometimes he feels like he's walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And troubled waters are all around him. He is on a bridge. Over troubled water. He skips like a deer on mountain tops. Walking with God. Strong with God. 
comforted in his relationship with God. And there is nothing that can pull him down from mountaintops and make him despair. Nothing. Even the worst thing that life can throw at him, which is death itself, holds no sting or power for Habakkuk. Another prophet wrote shortly before him, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. Where, O death, are your plagues? Where, O grave, is your destruction? Words of Hosea, quoted in 1 Corinthians 15. Yes, O death, where is your sting? Where is your power? Gone in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, if Habakkuk and Hosea could feel that way in the Old Testament, how much more we today? Tell me, my brother, my sister, what could get between you and God? What could really take away your deepest joy? Death? Is death something that, that holds such, such a fear for us? Such a, such a sting and a power that we say, oh, if I, if I suddenly were diagnosed with cancer and told I was dying, that would be the end of my joy? No, we know that at the moment of dying, and we close our eyes to this world, there's a door that opens and our Lord Jesus Christ is standing there. He wipes away the tears from our eyes. He takes us up into heaven where we are in joy. And he assures us that one day he will bring our soul back to this world and raise up our body in glory and give it back to us. There's nothing that can get between God and me. There's nothing that can take away my joy in Jesus Christ. Everything from the forgiveness of sins to life everlasting. It is well with our soul and with our body. Brothers and sisters, if, if, if all of us will embrace the, the full gospel of God showing mercy in the midst of wrath, that he gave his son, Jesus Christ, to be our Lord and our Savior, then indeed we will all be like graceful rose, deer that walk on mountaintops. Sometimes life seems dark, but there's a music that never dies. In our heart and in our soul, the music is playing and a song is being written about the dawn of a new day, the glorious victory in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's sing it now in hymn 10, last stanza. Amen.